Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Everyone, this is Victoria Lupașcu, one of the hosts for the Asian Studies channel by the New Books Network. Today, we are here with Dr. Ruth Yunzhu Chen, Assistant Research Fellow at the Institute of History and Philology at Academia Sinica. Hello, Dr. Chen, and welcome to our channel. Hi. Thank you for agreeing to talk to us about our new book, uh, your new book. <laughs> I, I instantly put it, our new book. <laughs> I'm sorry. So it is your work and your new book, Good Formulas, Empirical Evidence in Mid-Imperial Chinese Medical Texts, published by University of Washington Press in 2023. And before we start with any, um, you know, complicated, detailed questions, I wanted to um, ask you first, um, you know, to get to know you better and your work better. So could you please tell us how you came to this project? What got you interested in the history of Chinese traditional medicine and, you know, in studying the ways in which medical knowledge was construed, disseminated and interpreted in mid-imperial period? Sure, sure. As I got interested in the history of Chinese medicine first and then came to this project. So let me talk about how I got into this field first. So, well, uh, yeah, thank you. And well, when I was an undergraduate student in the history department at National Taiwan University, I attended Professor Li Zhengde's course on gender history in mid-imperial China. And Professor Li is warm, erudite, and eloquent, so I became her fan soon after attending her course, and I wished to work with her. So when I went on to pursue a master's degree, I asked Professor Li if she would be willing to supervise my master's thesis. Luckily, she agreed. But she also told me that the field of gender history is too broad for a master's student. So she asked me to decide on a subfield uh, of gender history. At that time, I actually knew very little about scholarship on the history of gender and history of medicine. So I simply think about that the medical history is about diseases and suffering from illness is inevitable from every human being. As such, medical history seems to encompass the broadest social groups of historical figure. I thus decided to study the history of gender and medicine in mid-imperial China. So I mean the China between like 7th to 13th century. And during my BA and MA degree course at National Taiwan University, I received thorough training in Chinese history, such as training in widely collecting primary sources and analyze them. So since then, I have been interested in investigating the social and cultural changes in China through the lens of medicine. And as I learn more about the field of medical history, I become more interested in, in it. So I have decided eventually to pursue a career on the history of medicine. And speaking of how I came to this project, as you know, the history of writing a book often involves a decade, a decade of work. So so did this book. <laughs> so it took me 10 years. The, the thing of this book concerns how also warranted the medical knowledge claims in China between the 9th and uh, 12th, cent- 12th century. I call the methods uh, persuasion strategies in this book. So validation, authority, and the making of knowledge lie in the heart of this project. My interest in the making of knowledge began when I wrote my PhD thesis. Um, after I got my master's degree from National Taiwan University in 2009, I went on to do a PhD at the Faculty of Oriental Studies at Oxford University between 2010 and 2014. 
And during these four years, my doctoral supervisor's research interests crucially informed my doctoral research. One of my supervisors, Professor Hilda de Vierdit, is a historian of Song Dynasty China, that is China between 10th and 13th centuries. Uh, she is particularly interested in the construction and spread of knowledge and the role of printing technology in transmitting knowledge in Song China. And Hilda left Oxford in the second year of my doctoral study. But although she supervised me for just one year, her study on the history of knowledge have inspired my interest in exploring the making and the circulation of knowledge in pre-modern China. And in addition, as a graduate who was writing up her dissertation, I was occupied by thinking about how to warrant the knowledge claim that I made in my dissertation and how to convince my readers Actually, the reader only include my supervisor and the examination reviewers, so about like three to four of them, them all. But how to convince those, those re- readers that the epistemic value of my dissertation? I thus become very interested in exploring how earlier authors endeavor to prove that knowledge in their works were trustworthy and useful. And back to the influence of my supervisor upon my project. The other of my supervisor, Professor Elizabeth Xu, is a medical anthropologist. We worked together over my doctoral study. So Elizabeth is, has worked on how hands-on experience, sensory perception, and the materials such as needles used for acupuncture and herbs used for treating mal- malaria, how those things shape medical knowledge in early and modern China. So her work has inspired me to pay much attention to how also describe their hands-on experience to prove that the medical knowledge they wrote was reliable. Of course, in addition to the intellectual inspirations from the the two supervisors, conversations with my doctoral classmates and other scholars also shed lights on the formation of this project. And during the early stage of this project, my discussion focused on medical authors' personal experience and their publishing practice. So in other words, it focused on authors. In the later stage of this project, I expand my discussion to medical readers. Uh, For for example, I explore how educated men verify the medical texts they read in this expansion of discussion scope owned largely to feedback I got from participants in conference and the colleagues in my current institute. And when I present my findings of my early project at conference, participants often ask me about the medical readers' re- reactions to those medical uh, to those empirical evidence in medical texts I discussed. Their question drew my attention to medical readers, and and I joined the institute. Uh, for history and the philology at, in 2015. At the Institute, there are a group of historians working on the history of knowledge and publishing history in different historical periods and different geographical areas. Conversation with them made, uh, were very helpful for me to think about how to examine medical readership in mid-imperial China. And in short, it is the very various kinds of intellectual networks around me that inform my research and research, research interest and this project. Yes. That is amazing. And it's such an interesting part, uh, you know, uh, part of, of the, the process, right, of, of writing a book. Um, all the community, communities you worked with and, you know, the, our supervisors, right, even if it's history of medicine or anthropology or literature, that we all have these, um, right, the, these communities that help us. And a book is really the, the result of these um, conversations and, and work is not, you know, you don't go into a room and you write a book, right? Um, so um, that is that is really fascinating. And it's very important for the our listeners to, to hear these, um, these kinds of descriptions, specifically if they are graduate students uh, writing their, their thesis or, you know, young faculty or um, you know, just just general uh, audience, um, and um, I'll I'll go on and get into the the description of the book. So um, I wanted to say that the book comprises of four chapters, accompanied by the introduction and the conclusions, and uh, quote charts changes in competing ways of warranting medical knowledge claims in Middle Period China, particularly between the ninth and the twelfth centuries 
end of quote, while maintaining a sustained focus on different authors' persuasion strategies. And that was from page three. And, um, you know, in addition to that, the book explores, quote, how state policies changed persuasion strategies that medical authors deployed, end of quote. So to start, I wanted to invite you to tell us a little bit about the epistemic changes in the Song dynasty that made that time period so important for the history of knowledge. And to follow up, what was the preferred persuasion strategy during the Song dynasty and what can it tell us at the meta-analytic level? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, well, when I, as I stated in the introduction, there were three significant changes in epistemic cultures under the Song that related to the rise of empirical strategies in medical texts in this era. The first change in the epistemic cultures of Song China was the increasing acceptance of knowledge obtained through hands-on experience as worthy of being learned and written down. For the Song educated men, Confucian classics, histories, and literary works remain essential subjects of their learning, their xue. Nonetheless, the growing number of those educated men came to write down their hands-on experience. For example, they document their healing practice, their travel experience, their connoisseurship of specific objects such as aromatics, flowers, seafoods, and alcoholic drinks. One written genre attests to a written general attest to the educated men's wider interest is the proliferation of notebooks Biji in the Song period. Notebooks Biji is also translated as jottings. A notebook is also a substantial type of primary source that I work with in this book. Please allow me to introduce this genre a, a bit. So in my understanding, a notebook is like someone select their Facebook posts and compile, compiles them into a book. The notebook does cover a wide range of choice in subject matters, including medicine, geography, history, anecdotes of famous historical and contemporary figures, ghost stories, and so forth. Notebook presents entries related to their subject matters in an item-to-item format without any obvious structure organizing them. The length of entries in notebooks like Facebook posts varies greatly. It can be only a few sentences or several paragraphs or even a long essay. As shown by other historians, one reason that the Song educated men wrote and published their notebooks is to demonstrate their erudition in knowledge in various fields. So back to the three epistemic changes in Song China. The second change was the growing presence and autonomy of individual authors. Many notebook and medical authors articulate their critical reading and the personal ver- verification of the textual and oral information they refi- received. In other words, the author's voice become much more apparent in the, their works. A few educated men in the Song dynasty even claimed that it was the Song author's very vacation separates Song learning from that in previous ages. The third change involved the increasing intellectual value of the reliability of a given text. The various methods by which Song noble authors verified receive information often promote the reliability of their notebooks. A growing body of scholarship has characterized, uh, I mean, eating scholarship uh, it has characterized reliability as a crucial concern of some notebook authors. So to sum up, the foregoing three changes can all be found in medical treatises that were complete in the Song era. Um, so many medical authors in the Song ca- accounted for knowledge, the knowledge acquired primarily through hands-on experience and tracing their critical reading and the personal verification of the text they had read and seeking to prove the reliability of their treatise. And one thing I should mention that most of the pioneering Song medical authors who apply an empirical strategy were scholar officials. By the term scholar officials, I am referring to educated men who either earn civil service examination degrees or held civil service official positions. So indeed, most of the notebook authors and most of the medical authors at that time were scholar officials. So the question is, why did scholar officials use an empirical strategy in the medical genre? In comparison, physicians in the Song dynasty also wrote medical books, but they did not adopt the empirical strategy. In general, when 
the Song Federation use persuasion strategies. They prefer to demonstrate their command of various and numerous texts, including medical texts and non-medical literature. So why was such a difference? This is one of the puzzles I, I try to tackle in this book. And speaking of the preferred persuasion strategies during the Song Dynasty, I think different written genre has different preferred persuasion strategy, and those strategy would the preferred strategy would change over time. So persuasion strategy are useful for historians to examine important turning points in the history of medicine and knowledge in China. And take my book as an example. The book focuses on the medical genre. In medical genre, the a long-standing persuasion strategy was citing authoritative source, especially medical classics that was attributed to semi-divine sages. Another commonly used persuasion strategy involved asserting the efficacy, yin, or effectiveness of a recorded remedies without specifying who had witnessed the successful outcomes. However, after the 11th century, Samsung authors began to write down their uh, first-hand experience in their medical treatise as a persuasion strategy. Those authors even criticized earlier medical authors who did not use this empirical strategy as reckless. Mm, such criticism show how the criteria by which some text was judged to be more reliable than others would change over time. Therefore, the rise of the empirical strategy in the 11th century provides a unique window through which to view transformation in the making of textual authority in mid-imperial China. Hope I answered your question clearly. Oh, yes, 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 absolutely. And I was just thinking, this is so fascinating, the ways in which um, the authors uh, that, that you mentioned right, have employed this type of uh, persuasive strategy and using the empirical method to uh, convince right, the others that their methods were working and you know, their, their formulas were good right, because they saw, they saw how these formulas worked, right? So yes, yes, right. That is, yeah, that's fascinating. And it just reminded me, um, just a very, very quick example, um, you know, in high school, we were studying Latin, and then we were using these discourses that these great authors had, uh, you know, in the, um, in the Senate, right, in Rome, to convince the others. And then you, you, you know, you, you talked about uh, pathos and ethos and how you would convince people to, to trust you, right, and ultimately vote for you in many ways, right? So it's so, so fascinating how in medicine this happens and throughout history, how you convince people to um, trust you, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and, you know, in, in chapter one, uh, we get to, to see this firsthand uh, on, on a text. And the chap- in chapter one, it's entitled New Criteria for Good Medical Formulas and brings us directly into the thick of things. And we quickly learn about Sheng Kuo's work entitled Good Formulas. And the title, as you mentioned in the chapter, can be hard to interpret. So I wanted to enlist your help here. Um, what were the elements of and the criteria for these good formulas? What, you know, what, what historical and empirical changes did they mark through their writing? And also, uh, what can we say in terms of the sources used for writing such a text like Sheng Kuo's? Yeah, sure. Um, Sheng Kuo wrote good formulas in the late 11th century, and good formula was a formulary. Formulary is a subgenre of medical literature in imperial China. The main content of a formulary is the collection of remedies. The collected remedies were often organized according to illness they could treat. The Eastern Sheng Kuo's good formulas collect some 100 remedies. And Sheng Kuo, in his preface to good formulas, proposed three elements for judging medical formulas as, in general as good. The first element is indicating a remedy's tasted effect, effects. This element was already commonplace in formularies complete before Sheng Kuo's day. The second is documenting an author's witnessing of its effects. The third is narrating situations where a remedy is succeed. The second and third elements are relatively new. Before Sheng's days, a commonly used persuasion strategy in formulary 
is asserting the therapeutic effects of recorded remedies without specifying who had witnessed the successful outcomes and in which situation. Shen Kuo criticized earlier formularies that did not deploy the two new elements as unreliable, and his advocacy of the two new elements thereby placed more empirical weight in formula writing than it had been born before. And interestingly, Shen Kuo was not a physician. He was a high-ranking civil official and never received authoritative medical training. In his school formulas, Shen Kuo was never ashamed to admit uncertainty about which drug remedies work more effectively. Like in Chapter 1, I argue that Shen Kuo's confidence in proposing the new criteria for trustworthy formulas derived from changes in his surrounding social and intellectual circumstances. One of the changes is that in Shen's day, the Song court assigned Confucian officials, not medical officials, to lead the project of editing and publishing medical texts. This assignment institutionally recognized Confucian officials and, by extension, scholar officials as a group in which it invested medical authority. Their recognized areas of authority include deciding which medical texts were useful and important enough to be disseminated across China by the government. Before the 11th century, some of scholar officials derived medical treatises, but it was in the 11th century that scholar officials, for the first time, received state support and institutional recognition as a group invested with medical authority. And speaking of information sources, information sources that Shen Kuo used for writing his med- his good formulas, on the one hand, Shen Kuo in his preface emphasized that documenting an author's witnessing of a remedy's effects was one key element of a good formula. On the other hand, in the main text of his good formulas, information sources that attest to the effects of a recorded remedies were not all from Shen Kuo's first-hand experience. Some of the information sources involve second-hand knowledge. For instance, Shen Kuo heard the effects from third parties, such as his friends. When presenting remedies, Shen Shen Kuo draws no clear line between the evidential power of his experience and that of others. The equation of evidential power of author seeing and hearing also appear frequently in other medical writings and notebooks in the Song Dynasty. So I think it is something interesting to me. I think this, I mean, the equation of the evidential power of author seeing and hearing is a distinguishing feature of the epistemic cultures in mid-imperial China. So it's my uh, reply. Fascinating. <laughs> I was looking for a different word, like not to say fascinating, I wanted to say what well, captivating, <laughs> but then that just came out. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, it, to me, right, as the, the audience, it just sounds uh, very, very captivating. And I want to ask for more, more details. But, you know, just a follow up question, I wanted to ask you about the readership of that period. So who read the accounts, right? Can we can we tell, like, who, how were uh, disseminated these um, these texts? Yeah, yeah, and thank you, Victoria, for bringing about this question. As readership is one of the key issues I discussed in this book. The target readership that Shen Kuo mentioned of his good formulas is what I call lay medical readers. I use the term lay medical readers as shorthand to refer to literate people who could read medical tests and had learned about a big medicine, but often found it difficult to design treatments without consulting medical texts or physicians. Uh, Shen Kuo himself is also such a lay medical reader. For instance, Shen Kuo recalls a small child in his household often suffered from a wet navel. This once continues situation once continued for over 50 days. At that time, Shen Kuo or or members in his household tried to apply drug remedies collected in formularies one by one. The application method of those drug remedies was to paste the drug on the child's one level. They tried tens of remedies and eventually found one drug paste was extremely effective. With one application of the paste made the child's navel dry. So 
Here we can see Shen Kuo or members of his household was unable were unable to design an effective remedy, or even to recognize which remedy is suitable for that situation on their own. But they just try remedies, collecting medical texts, each one in each one in turn, and wish to find a wish to find a useful one. And such lay medical readers already exist before the Song Dynasty, but they gain much greater availability in Song writings. The rise of lay medical readers were largely a result of Song courts and other officials' devotion to disseminating medical treatises. And, and also, I use the term medical readers. Why should clarify that no sharp boundary between professional medical writers and amateur readers exists in Imperial China? Any literate and resourceful person could com- could compile and compose a new medical treatise if if they like. And there was various media through which the Song Court and other officials used to, and also private publisher used to disseminate. Medical texts they could include in posting hand copied manuscripts, engraving medical texts on stone, and setting the stone inscriptions in public space, and wood block printing. And one last thing about the public dissemination of medical texts I wish to point out is that wood block printing technology in China had developed in the eighth century. But the technology was applied mainly to Buddhist texts at that time. It was after the mid 10th century, so about 200 and 200 years later, when the Song states were established, that the technology was first used for a wide range of written genre, including medical literature. This wider use made 11th century China the world's first print culture. While printing technology spread widely in the Song. Earlier media used for disseminating medical literature, such as hand-transcribed manuscript and stone inscriptions, continue to flourish. So, in general, from the second half of the 11th century onward, imperially printed books sp- spread steadily in greater quantity and at lower price, and the number of lay medical readers increased、um, c- concomitantly in that period. Yeah, thank you. Sure, it's it's you know I, just woodblock printing is so so fascinating and how it applies to to medical texts and also into the images right that sometimes you had maybe in these texts.、Um, so yeah, it's it's just、uh, such a such a rich topic to to discuss.、Um, and you know we move forward with it in chapter two, entitled "Textual Claims and Local Investigations." And here we see、uh, the chapter introducing Ko Jungshi's、uh, elucidating the mean the meaning of materia medica, and its specific way of documenting and exploring regional phenomena while reflecting on Emperor Huizong's policies meant to raise the status of medicine. And what were some of these unique features、uh, visible in Ko Jungshi's work, and how do they portray a particular political and social context? Sure, elucidating the meaning of materia medica is a pharmacological writing. Pharmacological writing in Imperial China focuses on introducing medicinal substances and the instructions for their preparation and use. I use the word materia medica to refer to this sub-medical genre, which was called benzhao in Imperial China. And two unique features in Ko Zongshi's elucidating the meaning. Uh, that Ko wrote a lot about his local investigations of medical medicinal substances, and about his arguments over the existence of a purported phenomena that he had heard or read before. For instance, Ko Zongshi,、uh, right, wrote that the earlier pharmacological texts claim that、uh, a fish cornament corn- did not produce X, and the、uh, A fish cornermus was considered as a medicinal medicinal substance in imperial China, and in the coal, and the the earlier pharmacological texts claim that such birds did not produce eggs, and it spits spits its brood out of its mouth. Coe Zongshi recalled that in his uh, elucidating the meaning of materia medica, he recalled that when he served as an official in present day. 
Hunan Province. A large tree stood behind his office. In its top, there were some thirty or forty nests of these birds. Ko Zongshi observed those birds day and night. He noticed that they were not only able to have intercourse, but also their eggshells were spread all over the place. Ko then documented this observation in his works to argue against earlier accounts of fish cornermats. Ko Zongshi's devotion to local investigation and argumentations portrays two particular intellectual and political contexts of his day. One is scholar officials' increased interest in documenting their local investigations. Beginning in the late 9th century, a growing number of scholar officials began documenting their own local investigations into regional phenomena about which they had read or heard, including information about medicinal substances and drugs. They often described their local investigations in notebooks and travel accounts. For instance, The scholar official Sun Guangxian, in his notebook, wrote about how he figured out medicinal substances used for making seduction drugs in Sichuan Province. Ko was a low-ranking civil official, and the documentation of his local investigations belonged to this intellectual trend. Another political factor that encouraged the birth of Ko Zongshi's elucidating the meaning. Is an array of government policies between the late 11th and early 12th centuries. Of course, they, the Emperor Huizong, were particularly interested in medicine, and his government designed an array of policies to elevate status of medicine and physicians. For example, the Emperor Huizong issued an edict in 1114 that. Allow individuals to submit effective medical formulas and healing techniques to officials in their local prefectures, so as to pass them to the court. And two years later, Ko Zongshi completed his elucidating the meaning of materia medica and submitted his work to the court in the same year. He claimed that his work could supplement and even correct two earlier pharmacological encyclopedias that the Song Court compiled and published, and and work and serve as a med,、uh, textbook in Song Medical School, a、uh, Song Government Medical School. Ko had been a law. Ranking official, I argue that Ko aspired to ascend the bureaucratic ladder by submitting to the court a putatively trustworthy and better pharmacological collections that rectify the earlier ones. Indeed, after submitting his work, Ko Zongshi received a new administrative appointment. The new appointment moved Ko Zongshi from the remote Hunan province to prosperous Song capitals, reflecting state recognition of his efforts. So, so to sum up, the rising visibility and evidential value of local investigation since the late ninth century laid the foundation of Ko Zongshi's reliance on the empirical strategy, and the Emperor Huizong's support of medicine encouraged Ko Zongshi to complete this new pharmacological treatise and submit it to the court. That's really. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry, yeah, <laughs>、uh, I just、uh, I got very excited about the answer, and I thought like, oh, okay, so that's an interesting way also to、um, right intervene into the social and the political、uh, ranking, right? That would generally go through the imperial examination,、um, and then Ko, you know, as you mentioned, decided to、uh, submit this this treatise and、uh, somehow get appointed. In a different way, right? Maybe there's a change there that that he he triggered, and that's to me that was very interesting, and you know made me jump off my chair and interrupt you at the end of your answer. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, then um, you know, and w- with that、um, and with the same enthusiasm, right? We will go to chapter three. Um, entitled "Demonstration of Mer-、uh, Medical Virtuosity," and、uh, the chapter analyzes in exquisite detail the work of、uh, Xu Shuwei, the widely benefiting formulary with explanatory historical context. What made Xu's work different than that of Shen Kuo's or Ko Tongshi's, and what changed at the level of political, social, and intellectual history with with this book? Hmm. Yes, 
thank you for this question. I I think um Shishu in Shishu's own um they uh say Shishu incorporate his and others medical case in his widely benefiting formulary, like Quad Shen Ku and Ko Zhong Shi did in their medical works. And in Xu Xue's own medical cases, he exhibits strong confidence in the therapy that he recommended. She was even able to justify his therapies by explaining their medical theories. In contrast, Shen Kuo was never ashamed to express his uncertainty about which are the best, best remedy to apply in particular cases. In Xu's medical cases, he often described his debates with rival healers and acknowledged his interest in competing with them for patient patronage. And such scenario is absent from uh, both Shen Kuo and Ko Zongshi's work. And these features of Xu Shui's medical case narr- narrative result partly from Xu's life career. Xu Shui practiced medicine as a physician and remained an examination candidate for several decades. And at the age of 52, he finally passed the civil service examination and hence become a civil official. Oh, I should mention the civil service examination took, usually took every three years. And after he passed the examination, he finally became a member of a ruling class. His life and career was so unique in the Song Dynasty that he became something of a celebrity. Uh, things that more uh, a great number of uh, civil service examination candidates that never pass, never attempt, but never successfully pass the examination. So she becomes something of celebrity for this this life career. And one popular anecdote in the song declared that she chose to become physician because saving lives enabled him to accumulate good karma, and the good karma. In eventually help Xu Shuwei to pass the competitive civil service examinations. So Xu's medical background explains why he displayed high confidence in the treatment and could vividly describe his competition with rival healers for patient patronage. And what particularly intrigues me is that Xu Shuwei did not publish his widely benefiting formulary when he was earning his living as a physician. Instead, he published this formulary late in life after he became a civil official and presumably he already retired. This aspect of Xu case supports the phenomenon that the pioneering advocates of documenting authors' personal experience medical texts during the Song Dynasty were predominantly scholar officials rather than physicians. Another feature of Xu Shui's widely benefiting formulary is that it is an early pioneer work whose author collects his own medical case narrative as supportive evidence in medical debates. To change in Social and intellectual context encouraged Xu to marshal medical case histories in his formulary. One was that in the early 12th century, publishing the collection of a physician's medical case history began to be a means of building up a physician's fan. The other change was the diverse and abundant disputes around about the understanding of the canon of cold damage medicine, cold damage shanghan. To be very brief, was a generic term used by medical authors in Imperial China for disorders that cover a wide variety of symptoms that were often ascribed to the invasion of the human body by seasonal or unseasonal cold qi. Some of the symptoms were reminiscent of what we know today as a febrile illness. And cold damage medicine rose in salience in the song as a medical Subfield. A third century formulary treatise on cold damage, Shanghan Lun, became the canon of cold damage medicine of Xu Shui's days. To understand the medical terminology and the theories in this canon, the Song authors wrote a lot of medical texts to discuss, even debate about with each other. To win the debate, Xu Shui appealed to the empirical strategy. He published the collection of his. his medical case history, of course, the successful one, in order to prove that his understanding of the canon was correct. So it's my reply. Yeah, yeah it's it's fascinating how he, um, you know, he, he went about writing and, you know, his career as well, the way he saw 
these uh, writings and also his um, his practice, right, as um, part or instrument uh, of, of his career. Um, so that was very interesting. And then, you know, with, with chapter four, we we go back to this um, like local type of, of um, knowledge in a way. And <clears throat> the chapter is entitled The Search for Therapies uh, in the Far South. And that brings in Lingnan and its characteristic warm and humid environment. Um, so what were the most common disorders and how were they treated? And in other words, what I wanted to ask is how did formularies or treaties change their persuasive strategies after the 10th century? What facilitated the changes? And, you know, because we're especially talking about the South. Yeah. So, sure. Uh, chapter 4 addressed the rise of empirical evidence in a medical subfield that was divergent from cold damage medicine that I just discussed in Chapter 3. That subfield yeah. Yeah, is the medicine to treat endemic disorders in Lingnan. Lingnan in Song era encompassed present-day Guangxi, Guangdong province, and Hainan Island. So it's in far southern China. Medical writers commonly describe the warm and humid environment in Lingnan as disease-inducing circumstances. One common disorder in Lingnan that the Song writers often mentioned was Zhang disorder. To be very brief, depending on narrative context, Zhang could refer to a miasmatic and harmful atmosphere in Lingnan, or refer to a variety of endemic disorders and fatal epidemics in Lingnan, such as feeling hot and cold flushes, and such this such intermittent fever would sometimes bring the sick, sick people to death. The, the Song writers had various opinions on how to treat Zhang disorders and other endemic diseases in Lingnan. So such a variety of opinions is quite interesting for me. As on the one hand, the Song court actively disseminated medical texts to Lingnan since the 10th century. On the other hand, civil officials who were kind of being exiled to Lingnan to far south in the 12th century still did not find any, they complained, did not find any of the state disseminated medical tests canonical or exemplary for the treatment of Zhang disorders. One of the civil officials in Lingnan, uh, Li Chou, developed a set of treatments by trial and error in uh, 1130s. Just taking as an example, Li Chou's treatment including to apply the decussion of fresh ginger and aconite first and apply drugs that could normalize normalized qi and calm the stomach. We can tell that Li Chou himself actually was not absolutely certain of the therapeutic efficacy of the remedies for the fact that he first used this set of remedies to treat his servants. <laughs> and after the servants recovered, he found, okay, this is can, it, it's work. So he applied the remedy to his acquaintance and his family members. Li Chou described this healing practice in detail in order to render his therapeutic recommendations for Zhang disorders more authoritative. And during the Song period, the discussion of disorders like Zhang disorders and the treatment in Lingnan appear not only in medical genre like Li Chou's formulary, but also in notebooks. As I mentioned earlier in this interview, since the late 9th century, an increasing number of scholar officials documented their local investigations into regional phenomena about which they had read or heard. Among all the places that had been subject to scholar officials' local, local investigations, Lingnan fascinate, fascinated them. And because Lingnan was seen as a remote, untamed, exotic area, they were dramatically different from the heartland of Chinese civilization. So the Song noble authors wrote a lot about their experience of staying in Lingnan and about their opinions on medicine to treat far southern disorders. The proliferation of authors' personal experience of and medical opinions about Lingnan in notebooks helped to warrant Li Chou and other local officials, civ- local officials' extensive use of the empirical strategy in their medical formularies. So to sum up, chapters three and four explore different uses of the empirical evidence in different medical subfields. Chapter three discusses cold damage medicine. In this subfield, where cons- consensus over its canonical set texts were being reached, also's medical case 
histories in general serve to illustrate uh, canonic textual knowledge. In stark contrast, in other medical subfields that like such canonical texts, such as uh, medicine, the subfield medicine to treat fast-selling disorders, authors' case histories play more important role in bolstering the reliability of a given treatise and a new healing knowledge. That it's that is just truly amazing how how that uh, came out and also how the two chapters really um, you know just summarize and analyze and uh, synthesize all, all this knowledge that I'm sure you had you know many many hours of pouring over and a lot of archival research so this is just this is just amazing um, and you know to, <laughs> speaking of that the conclusions beautifully sum up the main points in the chapters it's it's so um, you know the conclusions just really um, hone everything uh, in and I want I just wanted to invite you to restate for us the importance of the use of the empirical strategy in medical literature during the Song period especially since this dynasty represents one of the three major transitional periods in the intersectional formation of Chinese traditional medicine. Yeah, sure. So let me first introduce the three major transitional periods in the history of Chinese medicine. This three-period formulation is proposed by the medical historian Asaf Goldschmidt. The, uh, according to Professor Goldschmidt, the first period is between the 2nd century BCE to the 3rd century CE, when doctrinal medical texts and medical theories emerged. The second period is the Song Dynasty, when, uh, which is between the 10th and 13th centuries. As Professor Goldschmidt observed, the Song court in the 11th century began printing doctrinal medical texts and that had been complete during the first period. The Song court's efforts stimulated an integration of medical theories derived, derived from those early doctrinal texts and the Song dynasty healing practice. This integration characterized the Song eras as the second transitional period. The second, the third, third period is the impact of Western biomedicine upon Chinese medicine since the 19th centuries. In this book, I show that the integration of doctrinal learning and the healing practice during the Song dynasty contribute to the rise of the empirical strategy in this era. I also reveal that another equally significant factor contributing to a rise of the empirical strategy is the spread of block printing technology. So the spread of printing technology amplified the dissemination of medical texts. The higher availability of medical texts means that contrasting understanding of medical canons and different medical opinions were more visible to readers in this period than they had been before. The growing visibility of contrasting understandings encouraged closer intertextual dialogues between medical authors than ever before. Although the Song Court published many medical texts, those core commissioned version by no means quelled the Song authors' frequent and wide-range medical debates. In many Song authors' view, the core commissioned version was nothing but another voice in those debates. And in order to convince readers and the prospective dialogue participants of the correctness of their understanding or their medical opinions, the Song authors actually creatively apply a range different uh, a range of persuasion strategies, and many of them thus turn to document their personal experience as a as persuasion strategy. So in short, I think that the rise of the empirical strategy in medical literature during the the uh, Song period merits our attention because its rise illustrates how the world's first print culture reshaped the strategy for presenting medical knowledge and the formation of Chinese medicine. For sure. I absolutely support this. And I think it's it's such an important topic and, you know, that, that needs to continue to, to be explored. And, um, you know, I think more colloquia or, you know, workshops or conferences <laughs> need to happen on, 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 on this topic. Um, but Ruth, is there anything that escaped the questions and you would like to mention now? Well, well, I don't have any other points to mention now, but thank you very much for carefully designing those questions. 
<laughs> oh, my pleasure. It was absolutely amazing to read the book. And, um, you know, I, I really look forward to, to more, more books from you and more articles. <laughs> and uh, speaking of that, um, I was wondering whether you could tell us more about the, the current projects you're working on. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I will be happy to share. My current project still explores the documentation of personal experience in medical texts, but will be different from the the good book project Good Formula in several aspects. So the personal experience discussed in Good Formulas is about empirical evidence of drug remedies and of pharmacological knowledge. In the book, I trace how medical authors in the Song Dynasty wrote down their personal experience as an innovative persuasion strategy and put uh, the rise of this new persuasion strategy in the context of the, the Song Literatis epistemic culture and the print co- early print culture. And comparing to good formulas, my current project will also look the mid-imperial period, but it's a uh, is a uh, how say the longer period between the 10th, 4th, and 13th centuries. It will focus on how mid imperial medical authors deployed sensory sensory perception to discern authentic drugs from counterfeit ones. Therefore, while this ongoing project will still focus on medical learn medical learning environment and print culture and the literatis epistemic cultures, it will also discuss urban culture and the commercial culture. As shown by existing scholarship, the Song Dynasty witnessed the expansion of urban space, the flourishing of national-wide market exchange, and the proliferation of counterfeit goods. The Song people did discuss a lot about their anxiety about fake goods and discuss how to discern the counterfeits. So the project will investigate those Song people's discussion about fake drugs. In addition, it will explore trans regional circulation of different drugs as commodities and as daily necessities. The project will also examine the formation and the publication of commercial manuals about drug knowledge between the 4th and 13th centuries, especially in the Song Dynasty. And the, the current project will also talk more about sensory perceptions, because in the good formula, I talk more about the uh, medical case histories, and the current project is more focused on sensory perceptions such as smell and texture of a given drug ingredients. I wish to have a closer dialogue with scholars working on the sensory history, or you can call history of senses, in pre-modern and modern China. In short, in addition to history of medicine and knowledge, history of commercial cultures and sensory history are something I'm particularly interested in now. That is so so cool, and so <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and you know, it, it just speaks to all of these things that are you know just waiting to be be discovered, and you know, asks questions that need to be asked about our senses and the way they have been used right through history, as as you pointed out. So I am very much looking forward to interview you again on that project. Thank you. And I want to be thank sooner. you very much. <laughs> um, I'll wait. I'll wait. It's okay. <laughs> um, but thank you very, very much, Ruth, for talking to us today. And I'm looking forward to uh, continuing this conversation in the future. Well, thank you, Victoria, again for inviting me to be here, and I enjoy the conversation very much. Thank you.